So today we're going to talk about attitude. And I may have tipped the hand that I may have a bad one. Now, we, all of us from time to time have good attitudes and bad attitudes. And we sometimes need a little help with someone pointing out the difference. Um, my wife and I, we spend lots of time together. As a matter of fact, uh, usually she's right here on the front row, um, listening, watching, um, critiquing, who knows. Uh, she's not today. Jenny, if you, as you, many of you know, Jenny Longmire, our children's director, she has taken her oldest daughter, Mackenzie, all the way to Chattanooga for college. So she is out uh, this weekend. And my wife is filling in, substituting down there. So I'm going to tell you a story about my wife. And she's not going to have any idea what I said. And you aren't going to tell her because we're friends and you don't want to get me in trouble. But it did occur to me that so many times on Sunday morning, I talk about how much I love my wife and how much we get along and how much fun it is to be together after 31 years. And and it just occurred to me this week that she's always on the front and I'm always talking about this and I've never actually seen her nod her head and say, and agree with me and say, yeah, right. She just sort of smiles in this kind of a, a wry, kind of a, a weird way. And, and I finally, I said, Joy, you do, right? And she goes, well, of course I do. But um, we were talking, we were driving and um, well, we weren't doing a whole lot of talking actually. Joy was doing a lot of talking when we were driving and then it probably never happens to you. Uh, I was thinking we were in the car. She was over on her side, which usually isn't the driver's side unless I'm prayed up. Um, she does things in the car. A lot of this, texting, pulling down the mirror and looking and smiling and, you know, doing the things. And um, we'll say something like, and she told me we should, and then turn back to her phone and, you know, this and looking around and whatever. Um, and then she'll say something like, well, you, you do want to, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me sometimes thinking I'm involved in a conversation I'm not quite clued into yet. And so we got to ebb and flow. It works out great for us. And I'm thinking here, spiritual thoughts, of course, because that's all I ever do. Right. And I'm thinking about my message actually, because that's what I do every week. And so I'm thinking, okay, I got to get ready to, to teach and Joyce thinking about the wonderful things Joy thinks about. And so I just decided to ask her a question. So I just looked at my wife, I'm driving, she's sitting over here doing all the wonderful Joy things. And I just look at her and I said, how do you define bad attitude? Now, it was random to her. It wasn't random to me because I was thinking about it. And my wife went from a perfectly good mood, doing joy things, bebopping along, checking the mirror, texting, involving me in conversations she was having with somebody else, to not answering my question, but showing me the answer to the question. When I said, how do you define bad attitude? By going, looking at me, her eyes drilling a hole in the side of my head. And she goes, why did you ask me that? Now, that probably was a fair response being that I didn't give her a warning or a heads up as to why I was asking. But at that point I'm scared. Right. And I said, it's a fair question. She goes, it's not a fair question. Nobody asks questions like this unless they have a reason to ask. And she goes, you're the one with a bad attitude and she's giving it to me. Right. And I'm saying, well, in a roundabout way, you helped me sort of define what I wanted to define. And then I explained it to her. I'm going to be talking on Sunday morning about attitude. And I'm just trying to figure out how we define it. Now she showed me and pointed out how my attitude wasn't what it should be. It's easy to see in somebody else, you have a bad attitude or you've got a great attitude, but it may be a little hard to define what creates or causes an attitude. I have many times as a parent with my kids being young, particularly told them to quit giving me that attitude, right? 
Change your attitude. Stop it. You got attitude today. I don't need any of that attitude. Take that attitude somewhere else. Kids don't know what we're talking about, right? But I mean, we know what we're talking about. The attitude is the X factor, the X factor in life. And so I looked it up. I looked it up online. The definition of attitude, according to the dictionary, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary is very, very simple. It's a way of thinking that results in a way of acting. Things we believe that end up becoming things that we do. Make sense? But let's talk for a second about attitude because I believe that not only is it really important in our day-to-day lives succeeding in the things that maybe you find your hands doing during the week, but I think that it's the key to us being spiritually successful and effective. So let's look just for a second about this attitude check. First of all, many times attitudes we believe are dictated by the people who were around. Whether or not they make me happy, whether they don't make me happy, whether they're easy to get along with, whether they're difficult to get along with, I feel like my attitude's dependent on the way I'm being treated, my expectations, and in reality, our attitudes are not dependent on other people. You could ask your spouse, or I could ask your spouse, you know, does being married to Pastor Dan make you happy? Now, if I did that, Lori should say no because there's no other person that can make you happy. You can say being married to someone adds to my happiness, but no person's responsible for us being happy or having a good attitude. No circumstance can make us happy. Now there's some circumstances more difficult to deal with than others, but happiness and a good attitude doesn't come from circumstance. But oftentimes we find ourselves blaming circumstance for the attitudes that we have. It's my responsibility to decide whether or not I have a good attitude or a bad attitude. And the fastest way to change your life is to change your attitude. And attitude isn't everything, but my goodness, it's important. It's a big thing. I was talking to my oldest son about this just the other day. He's in a business where he sees some people get promoted and some people get passed up. People that are comparable in ability and skill What's the difference? Attitude. Now, attitude doesn't overcome incompetence. If you're terrible at your job, you can have a great attitude. You still may get fired. You might be okay with it, right? But it doesn't allow you to, to keep your job. But it's an X factor. It helps in marriages and relationships. It helps in dating relationships. It helps in school if you're a student with your teacher. It helps in all kinds of different ways. It's not everything, but it's a really big thing. And so I have a question for you. My question is, is your attitude right now your greatest asset or is it your biggest weakness? I actually want you to answer that rhetorically, just yourself. Don't elbow the person sitting next to you. Don't point out the flaws in the people around you. How's your attitude? Because as I think about Jesus, I've been trying to do this a lot lately, as I hope you have too. I've been thinking, what makes him so endearing, so contagious? What made people want to be around him? What made people listen to the things that he had to say? Because he said some things that were hard to hear. And at the end of the day, it was his attitude. 
We talked last week about optimism and pessimism. We talked about the fact that oftentimes it's at least a largely 50%, up to 50%, a byproduct of the circumstances and the way you were raised. Attitude has a lot to do with that as well. But changing our attitude, I believe, or making sure we have a good attitude, I believe is um, what determines whether or not you and I are spiritually successful or whether we're part of the problem. And friends, we live in a world right now that's desperately looking for a solution. The things that many people have based their faith on, the foundation of what we've assumed is normal, what we can count on, they're no longer. And people look around and they wonder what's real. What can we count on? What foundation can we build on? And now is the time for the gospel to shine. And now's the time for Christians to stand up and for people to see something different in us that makes them want something different that perhaps they've noticed in us. But if we're bitter, if we're angry, if we're jaded, off-putting, defensive, keeping the world at arm's length, enemies of everyone, not a friend like Jesus was, they're never going to hear what's important. We need an attitude check. I understand there are a lot of things in life that are making it difficult for us to have a good attitude, but there's a difference between an excuse and an explanation. You remember this, if we've been together any period of time that we've talked a lot about that. An explanation is a reason why I may be struggling with having a good attitude, contributing factors to where it might be more difficult today than perhaps yesterday for me to have a good attitude, but an excuse, we want to eliminate excuses, ruthlessly eliminate excuses from our life. That's saying that outside people, circumstances, well, that makes it okay for me to have a bad attitude. We don't ever want to excuse it. And you may wonder why I'm talking about this. Is it even biblical in the first place? And if you're wondering that, I'm really excited that you're wondering because I want to show you not only is it biblical, But the Apostle Paul wrote an entire letter to a church that he loved based on attitude. Joy, joy in the Lord, and having an attitude that is not based on circumstance, not on people because people will fail you, not on circumstances because circumstances get tough, but on some truths that you and I wrap our mind around Beliefs that we have that result in behavior. Are you with me? I hope you're with me. Nod your heads. If you, even if you're not, nod them. It's encouraging to a speaker to see heads nodding. Um, let's look at Philippians. Now, little background. I got to tell you the background, and, and I'm just going to tell you right off the bat. There are seven things uh, in this passage that I would love to talk to you about. We're going to get to one today because this one thing is the thing that I believe that I really need to talk to you about. And so I'm gonna take my time and we're gonna try it on. We're gonna look at it inside and out. We're gonna lift it up, put it down, check all the angles, really, really take a deep dive. We're only gonna get to the first one. We'll bring the rest of them up soon together, you and I. But I think this first one really, I think it deserves a little extra time. This was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, you and I have talked a lot about the Apostle Paul, right? You guys probably by now know who he is. 
the Apostle Paul, um, one of the greatest church planters of all time, a missionary, a person who used to be a persecutor of the gospel, got saved in a radical way, came to Jesus, gave his life to Christ, started churches. Well, this letter was written to one of the churches that he started, but my goodness, it was written to a church that had a special place in his heart. This is a letter, and I don't know sometimes how we view scripture. We've talked a lot about this when we talked about sort of the behind the scenes director's cut to the Bible. Sometimes you and I might think about scripture being written by somebody who's in an office above an old church and the desk is fluttering above, or the Bible above the desk in some holy kind of ethereal setting. And it's some otherworldly kind of person who's writing some things they don't understand. That's not at all how scripture was, was written. The Holy Spirit of God inspired a human author who was writing with real emotion, real feeling, and real circumstances, having lived a real life. And this was the Apostle Paul who found himself in jail for his faith, but he's writing a letter to a church at Philippi. He saw them first in about 50 AD, which is 50 years AD after death, right? Went on his second missionary journey. I don't want to get too much in the deep weeds, so please uh, just bear with me. The Apostle Paul had three really big missionary journeys. The first one was a little bit close to Jerusalem. The second one a little further out. This was his first kind of a move into you know, non-real Jewish areas, into Europe. He goes to Philippi. And when he goes into Philippi, he's looking for people on his second missionary journey, about 50 AD. He actually went back two other times in his third missionary journey on his out trip and his back trip. But this was the big time when he started the church. He tried to find some Jewish men, couldn't find any Jewish men. So he went to the river. He found some Jewish women who were meeting there, led one of them to Jesus. Her name was Lydia, a seller of purple. Now, don't pay attention to all this stuff. It's context. If you don't know the story, it's not going to prevent you from getting the point today. Lydia, the Apostle Paul, began to meet together, forming a church. And then Paul ran into some trouble. In this town, there was a girl who was possessed by a demon. There were people, her handler, she was a servant, a slave, who were making her do tricks, telling the future, other things. They were following Paul and his companions around, this lady, saying things that were disruptive, finally, the Lord freed this girl from the demon. People got mad because their living was gone, making this girl do tricks. They accused the apostle Paul of being disruptive to society, threw him in jail with his friend, locked in the inner dungeon. Do you remember? For some of you churchies like me, you know the story. You and I have talked about this a couple years ago. And he finds himself in the middle of the dungeon with a good attitude could have said, God, you've turned your back on me. Oh my goodness, why am I here? I don't deserve this. Here I am talking about Jesus. You've thrown me in the inner dungeon. You've wrapped my feet up in chains. And I, I, instead, they were singing. God freed them miraculously. The church was born. But this, my point, was not the Apostle Paul writing some distant letter to a people he didn't know. He's writing as a father to a son, as a, a brother to a brother or sister, as a pastor to people he loves, having literally given blood, sweat, and tears for this church. And he's writing with joy in his heart, and he says, I love you guys, and I want you to have a secret, to know the secret I've learned that Jesus has taught me. I want you to know the secret of having a good attitude, the power of having a good attitude, and what God can do through a person who allows this gospel to be seen in them. 
So he writes it. Now it's a great book. We're going to spend more time in this book. But this, at the end, this chapter four is where we're going to be today. And I want to read this to you, the whole thing, and then we're going to briefly go back and just deal with the first point. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Now friends, don't dismiss this, right? Easy for you to say, you're a Bible boy. You're the apostle Paul, right? Your feet didn't touch the ground when you walked. I bet you walked on water. This was a dude who suffered for his faith who did not know at the point in time his pen was hitting the paper whether his life would be taken from him. And he's writing to people he loves saying, you don't have to worry about anything. It's powerful. Stay with me. Don't worry about anything. Instead, isn't it great that he offers an explanation? Pray about everything. I'm going to resist the urge to dive in here. That'll be later. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace. What's the next word, friends? Thank you. Somebody will be with you. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. That's it right there. That's where you and I are going to spend the rest of our time today. And I'm just going to confess to you at the risk of being judged by you. In a moment of transparency, that this seems at the most superficial level to be one of the most trite, uncaring, dismissive things that anybody could ever say to anybody else in a time of need. Sometimes we Christians take the Bible and turn it into a slogan and wound people with it. And this just seems like one of those times. Pastor Rick, I just lost my job and I'm not real sure how we're gonna be able to pay the mortgage. Rejoice in the Lord, brother. Again, I say rejoice. Pastor Rick, my husband just walked out. I have no idea what I'm gonna do with the kids. My life as it was is no longer. Rejoice in the Lord, sister. Again, I say rejoice. How feeling would that be? How friendly would that be? How pastoral would that be? Pastor Rick, I just found out that I'm sick. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. But it's not like that at all. This is a man writing to his friends who's saying, I get it. Circumstances, they come and they go. God is greater than the highs and the lows, but the highs and the lows, they can take us and turn us around. And the foundation that we're building our life on can crumble as long as or if we don't have the right things in mind. If our beliefs have shifted, if our beliefs aren't correct, that our behavior, our actions, our attitude won't be correct. And he says, I have to ground you. 
And what's important, let me tell you how to have joy in the Lord. This is one of the deepest things that I could talk to you about right now. Because this literally, we're talking about right now, the supernatural ability to rise above. To be in the moment, in the circumstances, to understand the highs and the lows, but not to be tossed about like a ship without a rudder or a sail in the middle of a storm. The secret the Apostle Paul learned, and he says, I want you to be full of joy. Joy in the Lord. Now, where is your joy? Where does it come from? Again, in a moment of perfect transparency, at the risk of being judged by you, trusting that some of you are like me, I know that's a stretch. I tell you that oftentimes my joy comes from things that are very short-sighted and very temporary. Sometimes my joy is based on things as superficial as something I've decided that I want to buy next. Or a date that I want to take my wife on. Or a trip that I've decided to go on. Some benchmark, personal. Good, sure. Best, no. And I find that sometimes I live my life and take my joy from things that are so fragile and ultimately unimportant that it can be shattered at any point in any time. And the Apostle Paul is telling us, he says, listen, you can be engaged in this life, you can be into and happy about stuff, but if your attitude is affected, your demeanor, your sense of well-being, this peace that he's talking about, by these circumstances or people, you're never going to get it. I was thinking about King David. King David, really before he was king. David was a cool guy, renaissance man. He had great highs, he had some lows. We've talked about David, lots of scripture written about David. In this particular story of David or about David, I see a phenomenal example of rejoicing in the Lord. Remembering that God is greater than the highs, he's greater than the lows. That there's a way of living above that will ground us within. David was being chased by Saul. He didn't deserve it. Saul wanted to kill him. David didn't want to die. God had promised David some things. You're going to be king. You're going to be blessed. I'm going to do all kinds of mighty things through you, but he wasn't seeing it in his life. He was at a point in time where he was discouraged and he was disillusioned. Ever been there? Yeah. Are you there? Maybe. Running from Saul. Rock bottom. I heard someone say, never say you've hit rock bottom because there's always a rockier bottom that you can find. This dude was almost at rock bottom and you say, ah, it doesn't sound so bad. Let me explain it to you. He found himself going to the gates of a Philistine who were like the ninjas, the evil ninjas of the Chuck Norris movies of the Old Testament. The Philistines found himself going to an enemy king Abimelech, who by the way, that probably was just named for king, not a specific person, at the gates of this evil city called Gath, 
asking for asylum. And Abimelech looks over the wall and he says, uh-uh, I've heard about you, David. You killed people, my people. You're a mighty warrior. You're next in line for the throne. Kill him, is what he says. So David, who thought his day couldn't get any worse, just found it worser, right? He was begging for asylum from an enemy king in an enemy city who were enemies of God. And all of a sudden, this enemy and the enemy of his friends said, kill him. So David, sinking even a little lower, decides the only way out of this is to act crazy. So he starts acting insane, drooling on himself, taking off part of his clothes, rolling around in the ground, acting like he's lost his marbles. So the king's looking over the edge. He goes, it's no fun to kill a crazy person. Let him go. So off David goes. Tail between his legs. Discouraged. Disillusioned. Alive. Barely. And he finds himself in a cave. The cave of Abdullah. I don't know why that's significant. It just stuck in my mind. He goes into a cave and he sits down. And some other discouraged and disillusioned uh, friends that come sit with him. Now, David, this Renaissance man, this is the cool part. When David's happy, he pulls out his journal and begins to write, right? When David's sad, oh, he pulls out his journal, he begins to write. I'm sad, I'm sad, people are bad, life is hard. When he's discouraged and disillusioned, he begins to write. He pours his heart out through his pen. And we have the Psalms. Him not knowing you and I would be talking about this so many years later. But us reading this private moment from a broken man, discouraged and disillusioned, God's promises aren't coming the way I thought they would come. I am not seeing my life unfold the way I thought it would be. I just hit an all-time low, acting like a lunatic in front of a pagan king to save my life. And he had to remember, who am I and what do I believe? God's greater than the highs, greater than the lows. And this man, my friends, was in a low. So he writes this, I will extol the Lord, worship the Lord. When, friends, at, <laughs> I'm trying that again. All right, that was the second time we tried this. Okay, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. And this first part of this little three-part illustration is that he was willing himself to worship and be joyful. I will do it. Feelings have nothing to do with it, friends. I will worship. Now, why are we going to worship? That's what I want to know. How? Tell me to be joyful in the Lord. Rejoice always. Don't give me churchy sayings. Give me real stuff because he knew three things that you and I know. The first thing is, is that God knows everything. There's no questions you can ask that he doesn't have the answer to, no information unavailable to him. He knows everything. The second thing is that God controls everything. Now, it may not seem like everything is under God's control. Sometimes bad things happen, but ultimately, Romans 8 tells us God works all things together for good, good and bad things to bring about his plan. The third thing that David knew that you and I know 
is that God cares deeply about you and about me. And he has not forgotten. He is paying attention and he has a plan. And so David writes, I will praise. I don't feel like it, but I will. Now look what happened after he began to praise. He said, I will extol the Lord at all times. Now this is an acrostic in Hebrew. Each of the words starts with a different Hebrew letter. So the way it's structured is really intentional for those Hebrew scholars out there. For us, it's just English, but still has beauty. The second verse, I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and what? Rejoice. Now the subtle shift here, particularly in the original language, but it's visible in the English is that the emotion began to follow the will, which you'll see true in your life every single day, friends. What you feel comes from what you wrap your mind around. The truths you choose to believe will dictate how you feel in life. And David's saying, my heart's waking up. My joy's coming back. Perhaps God hasn't forgotten me. Perhaps he will keep his promises. You know what? He kept them yesterday. Why wouldn't he keep them today? He's going to keep them tomorrow. And he begins to feel it because he chose to believe it. And then he moves on here in verse 3 and he says, look what happens. His discouraged band of merry men are formerly merry men. Glorify the Lord with me, friends. Let us exalt his name forever. It began to spill over on the people he was closest to. And what do you know? The attitude changed. And what was one of the most low and bleak, discouraging and disillusioned moments of a person's life became a worship service. Because David chose to have an attitude based on timeless truths taught to us in times like this. Two things I want to leave you with. The first thing is, you are significant. The Bible tells us this over and over again, and I would never, ever tell you things just to tickle your ears and make you happy. I love it when the Bible does that, but if it doesn't do it, I'm not going to do it. I'm not giving you some kind of feel-good sort of a truism that you can put on a greeting card or share with your friends without biblical background behind it. Friends, you are significant. Your life matters. You were made on purpose. You are necessary. And God cares and he knows You'll see later in this passage that when the Bible tells us he's with us, it doesn't mean that he's near. It doesn't mean that he's coming again sometime soon. It means he's with you and your life matters. And the second thing is, not only are you significant, but you are secure. Forgiven for the mistakes of the past. Not having to be concerned about the present moment not even for a second wondering what's gonna happen when we leave this life behind. Because the guarantee of the reality of heaven waits for all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. And the apostle Paul knew this better than anyone else. He'd been there, he'd faced rejection. He was a person who put his joy in college degrees 
and seminary classes. The smartest of the smart. A person in his former life who had placed his joy in his social status and being somebody who was looked to as a member of the Sanhedrin to divide the law and tell people what to do with their disputes. A person who was respected, a person who was feared, a person who lived their life drawing their joy from things that God never intended in the first place. He learned that God is greater than any high or any low. And when he said, friends, I love you, always be full of the Lord, and I say it again, rejoice. He meant it. So do I. We got some more coming. These pillars for a great attitude, and I can't wait to share them with you. Father, thank you for my friends.